welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Ritchie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking our news of the day, none other. The former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, professor and senior fellow at Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy. Find her organization. She's doing amazing work. We are somebody.org. We are somebody.org. Always fascinating to have on the program. Okay, top story of the day. District Attorney Fonnie Willis files a motion to basically eliminate the current subpoena that says you all need to testify about a potential relationship. She says, well, hell, testify about what? I just told you, we are in a relationship. What is there to say? And it is not disqualifying based on the rules and law. Now, this is going to be an interesting twist, but let me take you to the video and break down first. Here it is. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis acknowledged having a personal relationship with the top prosecutor in former President Trump's Georgia criminal case. But Willis says that there's no reason for her to step aside. Almost a month after one of Trump's co-defendants first accused Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade of having romantic ties, the duo for the first time are confirming that their relationship has extended beyond friendship. But Willis says the calls from Trump and some of his co-defendants for her disqualification are baseless, offering a vigorous defense of her hiring of Wade and insisting that there is no conflict of interest. Wade also admitted the relationship in court filings, but said that he and Willis were only friends when the district attorney first hired Wade in 2021. Wade then began criminally investigating the former president over his efforts to cling to power after losing re-election. It ultimately culminated in a sprawling racketeering indictment against Trump and his allies last summer. In a 176-page response to the recent demands, Willis's office said the demands for her disqualification rely on, quote, supposition and innuendo, also writing that it is distasteful that such allegations require a response. Trump and his allies have latched on to the revelation of the relationship, with the former president again calling the case discredited after Willis's response, portraying her as using the case for financial gain. But Willis and Wade rebutted those accusations in the office's response, arguing that there is no legal basis for them to stop their prosecution. The duo is also pushing back after bank records surfaced appearing to show Wade purchasing plane tickets for Willis and him to go on vacations together to places like California and Florida. Willis and Wade said that they split their travel costs roughly evenly and have no shared finances. Now, on cue, here comes the circus. Here it is. Can you tell us about your complaint? Yes, I just filed this complaint against Fonnie Willis because according to the Georgia Finance Disclosure Act, Fonnie Willis, as a district attorney for Fulton County, is required to file financial disclosures, all office holders, we all have to do this. However, she did not file financial disclosures in 2019, 2021, and 2022. Now we all know about her secret boyfriend. It is now public. She was having a personal relationship with Nathan Wade. Okay, Uh, the Georgia Finance Commission, um, they are a non-criminal regulatory outfit in the state of Georgia. Let me try to separate a few things here. If you were to believe the narrative of the defense, they are arguing that there's nothing really illegal or inappropriate about their romantic relationship. You need to hear me out on this and look at the motion. 
The defense is not arguing there's something inappropriate because of the romance. That is the media spin. The motion argues that his payment, the money he receives, is simply so that she can be enriched. So she's using the prosecution of Mr. Roman, the defendant, and others who are Trump co-defendants in order to make more money. Do you believe that? Do you believe that she is prosecuting Donald Trump to make more money herself and using Nathan Wade as a proxy to that ultimate goal? Hell no, you don't believe that. Because there are other people you could have prosecuted in a scheme with a lot less fanfare than this one and did the same action. So no, no one believes that. That is the argument of the defense that somehow she's utilizing this entire case in order to make more money. Now here's the other side of that, okay? What she did is, in my opinion, a self-inflicted wound, unforced error. It should not have happened. Does it disqualify her from being the prosecutor on the case? No, it doesn't. Because there is no legal or statutory violation. Does it disqualify her ability to prosecute the case? No, it does not. Now, let's say. It, she actually does get removed. What happens? Based on Georgia Constitution, the Attorney General of Georgia, Chris Carr, he's a Republican, he then gets to appoint a special prosecutor to take over the case. Under no case scenario does the motion get granted. What is the actual genesis of the motion to dismiss all charges? That's not going to happen because the charges are constitutionally affixed based on the special purpose grand jury's recommendation to the normative grand jury in Fulton County who gave the true bill. So the rights were not destroyed, manipulated, or violated in that process. And nobody's arguing that. So here we are, um, Fulton County District Attorney's Office asked the Georgia judge Wednesday to quash subpoenas of top prosecutors in former President Trump's 2020 election interference case that would require them to testify to hearing next week over whether they should be booted from the case. After accusing Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade of having romantic ties, one of Trump's co-defendants in Georgia subpoenaed the duo along with more than half a dozen of their colleagues for the hearing scheduled on the 15th. Now, why did they do this? Why is the judge even, even allowing it? Understand what happened here. On the last day that you could file a pretrial motion, somehow the defense got wind of a rumor. They got wind of a rumor. And they filed a motion based on the rumor. The motion does not have any statement of fact, nor statement of law, nor, nor statement of constitution. None of that is in the motion. Those things are supposed to be in the motion, at least one of them. The motion should have been dismissed on its face value, but it wasn't. So they get wind of a rumor. They put the rumor in a motion. The motion gets air. It takes flight. Now, Fonnie Willis, the DA, 
she is being placed on the chopping block and the whole narrative is now about her. Both Willis and Wade last week admitted to having a personal relationship. But the district attorney's office had described the cause to step aside baseless and said there was no need for the hearing. They're trying to simply embarrass her. In a new 36 page motion Wednesday, the DA described the subpoenas as ill-conceived and based on reckless accusations, urging Judge Scott McAfee to block the attempt to compel Willis, Wade and others to testify at the hearing. Georgia law, as well as authority from across the country, predictably frowns on a process that permits counsel for one litigant to compel the testimony of counsel and employees of the opposing party is damn near unheard of. And there is no justification to depart from that general principle here. Special Prosecutor Anna Greencross wrote on the state's behalf. All right, Senator, thoughts here. Naming and shaming. I mean, yeah. if I were on the other side, I'd be grasping for these kinds of straws as well. The Trump campaign, the Trump defense, you know, everybody that is in support of Trump, including that that person you just showed, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. are really playing to the court of public opinion here. And this is exactly why they did it to slow down the process. Now, Dr. Richie, I agree with you in terms of a forced era. This is all the tangled web we weaved. Yeah. What is the appearance of impropriety? No basis in law, as you laid out so succinctly, but in the court of public opinion, where you're not dealing with a whole bunch of folks who necessarily have legal degrees or even going to look at this from a legal perspective, perspective, which is what the Trump campaign wants, they're going to look at it purely from an emotional, they're out to get him. This is more proof. Bo Jackson gets $21 million in a case. He gets awarded $21 million. Man, put up Bo, man. Bo winning. Let me say this. I'm glad the brother doing well. I haven't heard from Bo Jackson in so long. I used to watch that cartoon early Saturday morning. It had Bo Jackson, Wayne Gretzky, and Michael Jordan. Does anybody remember the name of that damn cartoon? All right, Bo knows. So sporting legend Vincent Edward Bo Jackson has been awarded just over 21 million by a Cobb County judge in his civil extortion case. But here's the kicker. It's against his niece and his nephew, whom he accused of relentless harassment and intimidation. This is an interesting story. The judgment came on the second of this month alongside a permanent protective order barring them. Thomas Lee Anderson and Erica M. Anderson also known as Erica Anderson Ross, from further bothering or contacting Jackson and his immediate family members. The Andersons must stay at least 500 yards away from the Jacksons and their homes, workplaces, and schools, and remove from social media any content about them, i.e. against them, okay? The Andersons are Jackson's niece and nephew. He said his complaint against them filed in April. The lawsuit alleged that Thomas and Erica Anderson, who live in Cobb County and Texas respectively, tried to extort 20 million 
from the former professional baseball and football player. Quote, unfortunately, for those attempting to extort $20 million from Jackson and his family, Joe Steele hits hard. Jackson's attorney said in a press release about the case. Attempts to contact the Andersons and their attorneys were not immediately successful. Jackson claimed the harassment started in 2022 and included threatening social media posts and messages, public allegations casting him in a false light, and public disclosure of private information intended to cause him severe emotional distress. He said Thomas Anderson wrote on Facebook that he would release photos, text, and medical records to show America he wasn't playing around. Uh, the Andersons, with assistance from an Atlanta attorney, demanded $20 million in exchange for ending their conduct. You know, we call that blackmail, okay? Uh, in the court, it's extortion, all right? Uh, the, he said they treated a threat, excuse me, to appear at a restaurant near his home and disrupt a charity event he hosted in April as a means of harassment and intimidation. Now, much of this is on record, by the way. This is not he said, um, she said. Jackson feared for his safety and that of his immediate family, the lawsuit states. It sought a stalking protective order against the Andersons, as well as unspecified compensation for intentional infliction of emotional distress and invasion of privacy. Jackson also brought a civil conspiracy claim against the siblings. Now, in a February 2nd order, Cobb County Superior Court Judge Jason D. Marbutt said, neither the Andersons nor their attorneys rebutted Jackson's claims or participated in the case after a May hearing when they consented to a temporary protective order. The judge found the Andersons to be in default, accepting as true all of Jackson's allegations. Quote, Reasonable people would find defendants' behavior extreme and outrageous. The court saw evidence that an attorney representing defendants claimed his client's conduct was cease from the sum of $20 million. Um, as the AJC notes, um, Jackson, uh, who, who is now 61 years of age, uh, former Heisman Trophy winner, played both uh, national football in the National Football League and the Major League for baseball as well. He was raised in Alabama, lived in Illinois at the time of him filing this complaint. And, uh, you know, Bo honestly has always been, at least in his public persona and some of his charitable givings, a very, very decent person, very nice guy. And I, I, I have seen him on occasion throughout the years. And the older he gets, it's like the more Zen master he becomes, right? He, he's a he's a very gentle soul. Uh, for this to happen to him, and for them to be this extreme in their uh, not only rhetoric but threats against a family member is quite unbelievable. And before anyone adversely judges uh, uh, Bo Jackson for suing his niece and nephew, I mean, please look at the court record of what they were threatening to do to him. And say about him. And first of all, uh, everybody who may be blood connected to you, that doesn't mean that they have your best interest at heart. And he had to somehow stop this from permeating. And he did exactly what he needed to do. 
He got the judgment in his favor. There's a protective order as well, which is probably most important to him. And I promise you, they don't have 21 damn million dollars to give him. He'll never get that money, right? But he has the judgment and the protective order and likely has sent the message. Senator, thoughts here. Yeah, point made. Bo sure does know. I remember growing (laughs) up with the Bo knows. Uh, One of the favorite commercials, you know, just that good rhythm, Bo knows. And that, as you laid out, I mean, he, I think he's the only professional athlete to win all star in two professional sports, Mm. even now. So Bo knows what he's doing. Now, this, this puts a new spin on you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. I know. I mean, this, this makes no sense that they would put him through this. They ought to be ashamed, but obviously they are not because they tried to extort their relative. And I'm glad that the judge saw through it. And I love the judge comment about any reasonable person, uh, et cetera, et cetera, would see, you know, how foul basically this was. And, and they're, they're getting just exactly what they, deserve and big ups to to Bo. Yeah. He was quite quite a I mean he still is. He is a living legend. Yeah, very much so. Very much yeah. so. to make sure that she was not being abused. Uh, They weren't trying to stop an arrest. And if you listen closely, there's an officer. And I think the the, the spirit behind what he's saying is you're being being too rough. He keeps saying, um, just just put her hands behind the back. Put her hands behind the back. It's, It's almost as if he's trying to remind them that you can do this professionally. You don't have to do all of these other things you're doing. I put up the picture full mask. Uh, this is a hell of a story. 25 year old Deshaun Renee Pons. This Pons, a Kansas City, Missouri woman, says she has now suffered a concussion. She has suffered memory loss. She has a swollen eye. She has a bruised face. Several, several off-duty Kansas City police officers. Did you hear what I said? Off-duty Kansas City police officers decided to wrestle her to the ground during an arrest at the Power and Light District. This was on January 28th. This Pons was with the cousin and his girlfriend 
watching the AFC Championship game before the Kansas City Chiefs, between, excuse me, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens. This was about 8 p.m. when she had an argument with a bartender about her bill, and the off duty cops were summoned about the bill. Cell phone video recorded by a bystander shows several Kansas City Police Department officers pulling pawns toward a security office as she is handcuffed and screaming. In the video, an officer is seen grappling with pawns and forcing her head and face into the ground while she calls for help. A second officer places his knee on the back of Pond's leg to prevent her from moving. In the video, one of the officers is heard yelling at Pond's, quote, if you act like an animal, we're going to treat you like an animal, end quote. Another officer curses and threatens to arrest the person who recorded that statement. The video shows Ms. Pond being taken out of view into the security office as the person recording the video loudly protests and bangs on the door. In the interview, Tuesday, Ms. Pond said the treatment she received was unfair. Quote, I'm 5'2", and I'm under 150 pounds, Ms. Pond said. I was no threat. I couldn't have hurt them in any way. And the whole time that they were hitting on me and beating on me, I was in handcuffs, so I couldn't have done anything extreme to them. And and for those of you who say, well, well um, I don't believe that happened. Well, here's the thing. They, they took her into a private room. You understand? See, the police could be well covered here if they did not take her into a private room, handcuffed. Details of the argument with the bartender, some of the back, background. She wasn't able to buy um, any drinks using the debit card on her phone um, after realizing that the phone had died. She had an argument with the bartender who said, she did not pay for an alcoholic drink. Ms. Pond said she was charged for the drink that she did not order or even receive. She also said she recalled giving the bartender her debit card and that it was declined when he tried to charge her. She said some details of the incident remain unclear because she has suffered memory loss as a result of the injuries. What were the charges? As a result of the arrest, Ms. Pons received municipal citations for disorderly conduct larceny and assault. These are city charges, okay? City. The city charges allege Ms. Pons yelled and screamed obscenities at the manager inside of a crowded bar, jumped over the bar and grabbed her credit card back. The charges accused Ms. Pons of intentionally stealing a drink, kicking a police officer on the left side of his head, and biting him on his inner thigh. Ms. Pons doesn't remember being placed in a police holding cell and is unsure how she got there. She recalled being hysterical. The handcuffs officers placed on her wrists and ankles were too tight and left her bruised, swollen and with scratches. Ms. Pond's mother and another relative paid her bond to have her released from police custody. Uh, But the events of the evening left her traumatized, she said. Ms. Pond's has hired an attorney. She is scheduled to appear in court on these city charges, city charges, March 28th. Uh, Captain Jacob Bacini, KCPD spokesman, when asked about the arrest and video, said officers and security guards were called to the disturbance and that taking the arrested person to the security office was, quote, usual protocol. Other details of the arrest are not public record at this time due to the ongoing investigation. Uh, Bacini also went on to say bystanders 
cannot legally. Now, now remember now, this is what the spokesperson is saying. They can't, they can't, they cannot legally be restricted from, from filming police. They cannot legally. So that means that when the cop restricted the individual, he broke the law. Did anybody put him in handcuffs? Did they take him into a private security room? Uh, did they rough him up? Let's put the uh, picture back up. This is the cop that, according to the spokesperson, broke the law. Uh, they're not allowed to restrict anyone from filming. Um, but it says, the, but he says the law does not allow a person recording to get so close they interfere. The, the person wasn't interfering with a damn thing. All right, interfering with what they were doing. Um, in secret, trying to make sure transparency was available. Officers are well within their right to advise a citizen to cease their actions if they are creating an interference. That's not what he did. He assaulted the guy, as you see and hear. And then he decided to back the guy up. He didn't say, stop interfering. Um, let's put her up. So the National Police Accountability Project, we got Lauren Bonds, executive director, said the man recording the incident appears to have done so from a safe distance and did not appear to be interfering. Based on the video, she said the man was no closer than the other bystanders. What was the difference? He was recording. All right. All right. We'll bring you updates as the story develops. Uh, Senator, thoughts here. Yeah, they were upset that he was recording. He was at a safe distance. He was very respectful. Now, what happened at the bar, then call the police, have her arrested, and let a judge figure it out. But to have all of those officers converge on her like that is problematic. Also, when you have a police department that has a history of, they have lots of complaints that are based in some anti-black claims, then you ought to do things a little differently. Just because it may be standard protocol to take somebody in the security office, she was absolutely hysterical. She was probably just totally scared, and, and who could blame her for being scared? Doc, they should have handled this a different way, especially since you have a transparency and accountability problem. Now, if people were going to converge on the officers, I could understand why they might want to move it away so that other people don't kind of like jump in. But that was not the case here. They should have kept this out in the open so there could be no claims about what they did and what they did not do behind the scenes. It's called accountability and transparency and building a relationship. For whatever she is accused of doing, let's say just say for the sake of argument, she didn't pay for the drink. Then let's just go ahead and argue that out in court. But under no circumstances should she have been roughed up like that and treated like that. And right. certainly under no circumstances should a law enforcement officer say to her, if you want to act like an animal, we're going to treat you like an animal. That is definitely cold for anti-black racism. Yep. They need some, some cultural competency. Now, I know you and I talk about training all the time. Training can't solve in everything. Right. But my God, some cultural competency that you don't say that to anybody, but you especially don't say that to black people, given the history between law enforcement and the black community in these United States of America. That's right. And, and he said it in front of everybody. And, and I'll go a step further. All right, let's say the young lady did not. I'm just being hypothetical. Yeah. She did not pay for a drink. Okay. Ban her from the property. Say so you cannot come back here. Um, or, or perhaps give her the opportunity to pay for it at a later time. You know, people still do, do that sometimes. 
when there's an honest mistake that has happened. And then think about the money that the city has to pay to prosecute somebody for a $5 drink. That's that right. It's insane. The manpower, the money, the judiciary, etc., has to now start working because of a $5 drink. Put it up full mass. I need officials and authorities at these games to be more vigilant. Uh, this is a family event. A male Karen at an NBA game calls Russell Westbrook boy. It made sure he's teaching the young people the way that he wants them to go. Um, obviously, racist, obviously demeaning, and it has no place anywhere, let alone a facility where you actively recruit families to join. Um, this is not the first time, obviously, uh, Russell Westbrook, excuse me, Westbrook has been um, a victim of some of this rhetoric and racial vitriol before. You know, at some point, you know, humanity becomes humanity, and you can't you can't keep pushing someone. This is why I'm telling officials and executives and the security protocol: you have to do better. You have to do better at regulating this kind of stuff, Senator. It's unfortunate that this happened, but it happens actually a lot. We don't always get the video footage of it, but we do hear about the aftermath. What say you? Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, even him calling him boy, again, laced with anti-black racism in particular. We just got to just tell the truth here. You know, my grandparents, my maternal grandfather was born around 1914. And I remember him telling stories about being called boy by white folks when he's a grown a man. Uh, there is a history and a lineage in this country of dehumanizing and trying to emasculate black men by calling them boy and laws both well de facto in, in practice and de jure uh, abilities for white people to be able to act this way and so this man is just a 21st century version of that you know doc when you were telling this story it just also reminded me of what Jackie Robinson for example had yes. to endure as the first you know black player in a, in major league sports and him being told how he had to comport himself in order to back some of these people off from him when he wasn't doing anything wrong it was them. It was their anti-blackness yep. uh, anti that caused them to treat him in that way. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that, that white man used the word boy deliberately 
It oh, wasn't yeah. I, it wasn't an accident that he called him a boy and he said, I purchased these seats, boy. In other mm -hmm. words, you know, I got a right, you know, there's all kinds of stuff we can weave into that too. You know, ownership, I own this seat, you're here to entertain me, boy. And so I have every right to be here and you should be just happy that I have graced you with my presence. Yeah. And and so many times you make such a great and compelling point. So many times we have conformed to racism. That's right. Rather than telling racism, you must conform to our rules that racism will not permeate in this culture or in this facility. And with Jackie Robinson, a lot of people are not aware that Jackie Robinson was not the greatest baseball player out of, let's say, the Negro League. That's right. You had some amazing talent that Jackie Robinson would have told you back in that day could do much, much more on that field. But Jackie Robinson was willing to be the temperament required in order to have that position. And he combined these dynamics together. Athleticism was superb, obviously. But he also had to accept what he was breaking through. And he had to once again conform in a way to people calling him the N-word, et cetera, when he walked out on the field and not acting out of anger. Uh, I, you know, everybody ain't able. School principal, um, what can I say? She does an active shooter drill. She, she's the, it's a long story. Put up the picture. Um, Los Angeles County. Principal Nina Denson, a school principal, was placed on administrative leave after witnesses said she held a disturbing active shooter drill at an elementary school. The principal, um, made some children and parents upset. It happened at Washington Elementary on Wednesday and involved Ms. Denson, the principal. She joined the school in 2023. This was a series of actions, according to the parents, uh, led by Ms. Denson during a lockdown drill. According to the parents of the students, quote, she proceeded to walk around campus and pretended to shoot people she saw using finger movements and banging on windows, okay? And I said Jennifer Chavez, a parent, from what I heard, this is a quote, from what I heard, she said to one of the students, boom, you're dead, end quote. Some of the children who witnessed the principal's actions were as young as four years old, a parent said, Quote, oh, he was really upset, Chavez said of her son who was in the first grade. Quote, the one shocking surprise thing, surprising thing, he said as a six year old was, quote, I'm just really glad none of my friends died, end quote. After the drill, staff members claimed Ms. Denson then made an announcement um, saying seven children were dead. Quote, can you imagine the trauma these children potentially could go through just thinking, oh my God, my friend was killed or I was shot and, and told I died? Um, said Anna Bustamante, a parent, quote, at the young age that these children are, it was very disturbing. Uh, district officials later sent an email 
stating, quote, the conduct of the drill does not appear to have been aligned with district protocols or best practices. You, you don't say. Uh, an investigation to the incident is underway. Some parents have already made up their minds that they are calling for Denson to be removed from her role. And um, this is the superintendent. I'm sure he's not going to help. According to Jim Simmons, the superintendent of the San Gabriel Unified District, the safety drill was not authorized, he says. Quote, this type of drill where a scenario was run is not appropriate by the district, is not approved by the district, nor part of our district protocol. Uh, some of the staff members were also reportedly upset by the unauthorized drill. Officials told KTLA counselors were told um, on school premises for any students or staff who may have needed those services. An email update sent to parents on Thursday confirmed a veteran teacher at Washington Elementary will be taken over as interim principal while the investigation continues. This is this is one of those things where when you first see the story, you say, okay, all right, I see what she's trying to do here. And then you read more details and you compare it to the age of the students who are, some of them are unable to really understand the, the significance of fact and fiction. And the principal announcing it on the loudspeaker, four year old children are part of the school. Uh, facility. Well, you realize, okay, uh, this person has made a tremendous professional error. Uh, and I say that as a former high school teacher, uh, that the high school, I damn sure would not have done it uh, in an elementary school. But even in a high school, it would take preparation to help them understand here's what we're doing, here's why we are doing it, and here are the parameters of what will happen. Like you, you even would prepare high school students for some kind of drill like that. To do this to elementary students, ill-conceived. I don't think it was evil in nature, but absolutely ill-conceived, unprofessional, and um, you know it's a mistake. All right, Senator, thoughts here. Well, you're talking about getting into the role. That I know. Exactly. Goodness, the principal did that. She went all the way with this. Yeah. She actually went too far. Now the question becomes: Should her entire career be upended yeah. because she had a moment of lapse judgment? You know, that that's the main thing that I am most concerned about, you know, given her suspension, whatever other punishment she may, it, this situation may merit. But if she's going to be scarred for life and, and pushed out of education for life, then that, that's that's a bit that's problematic. Yeah. And this is one of those cases where you really do need to do an investigation just to understand her point of view, state of mind, yeah. maybe some of the other people she possibly consulted with before, even though she did not have actual approval. From the district, maybe she had some type of conversation with someone in authority from the um, from the actual corporate office. We don't know, don't but know. this is one of those cases. Listen, investigate, get a state of mind, see did she intend to harm anyone at all or not. All right. Monique and Cat Williams are going on tour together. The internet is about to be broken forever. Uh, and the Breakfast Club, in particular, Charlemagne the God, actually apologized to Monique. We have that, and I got some more stuff as well. So here's the announcement. Hey, you know what? Let me show you what I'm about. And I want to talk to y'all about our brother, Cat Williams. <laughs> now, y'all know that is my fraternal twin brother, non-biological. 
Okay. And I want to tell y'all about my twin brother, Cat Williams, baby. Guess what? I'm going to be joining my brother, my twin brother, Cat Williams, on the Dark Matter Tour. So I'm excited. We are excited. I cannot wait to see y'all. Connecticut, I see y'all tomorrow night with our brother, Cat Williams. All in New York with our brother, Cat Williams. Yep, the Dark Matter Tour. I actually like to play on words. You know, the blackness associated with it. Dark Matter is considered antimatter in physics. You get it? Okay, all right. So the um, the duo, uh, Sidney and Monique, not Cat Williams and Monique. Um, I actually spoke to them earlier, uh, and they sent this statement to Indisputable, uh, and I promised I would read it. Uh, quote, the reason why certain people dislike the truth and messengers of the truth is because it destroys the illusion of goodness that they want to perpetuate by way of a lie. Keep on telling the truth, Dr. Ritchie, because that's what we were born to do. We love you for real. Um, I've been friends with them for a very long time. I've always said they are some of the greatest people I know. I don't see why everybody else has a problem with them. I, I think they are the problems if they have a problem with Sydney and Monique because they are very genuine people. Now, Charlemagne the God uh, apologized for something he said about Monique that was wrong. And here it is. She's right. Netflix ultimately ended up taking back their offer. And then in 2019, Monique sued Netflix for failing to negotiate in good faith. The federal judge in the case sided with Monique. And in 2022, the lawsuit was settled out of court. Dropping the clues bombs for Monique, okay? Here's the thing. I've said this before, and I've said it a few times on this radio. When it comes to that point, Monique was right. I should have minded my black-owned business, okay? And she's right when she speaks on the power of the microphone because people from Netflix were definitely reaching out to me behind the scenes. And they tried to explain why Monique didn't get the money that Amy, Dave, and Chris got. Doesn't matter what the conversation consisted of. Just know, as I just said, Monique sued them and they settled. So there clearly was some validity to the injustice that she spoke of. Monique, you were right. Okay, I've said that before on this radio and I'll say it again. So you hear me. I had no business speaking on your business. Okay. One thing I really appreciate about Charlemagne the God, and I've seen him do this uh, multiple times. He grows right in front of you. Like he's willing to say, you know what? I think about that same thing in a very different way today. I have just seen this. I'm very proud of that brother. Uh, he's one of the great ones. Now, Monique and Sydney respond to the Breakfast Club's apology. Here it is. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And because you babies owned it and you apologize. We love you and we loved you then. Not mad and want y'all to win. And we hope that today for you guys, the feeling that Charlemagne got Brother Lenard received from the community by big upping him for apologizing. Y'all have the power to heal. Use it. Use it to heal. And that's what Monique was saying during the interview a few years ago. Now, there was another interview that I conducted with Monique and I ended up bringing Sydney on stage because Sydney was involved in a back and forth seemingly with Steve Harvey. Uh, Monique was being interviewed by Steve Harvey. 
And Steve Harvey brought up Monique's husband by name during the interview. Um, and so this is what she, uh, this is what both uh, Monique and Sydney said then. Here it is. When I heard um, Steve say your name, and I, I thought it was just really interesting that the conversation wasn't about you, but it became about you. Um, you as, you are a leader in Hollywood, you are Monique's manager. You're a leader, this is what you do. I did some research. You've actually helped land some of the biggest deals that Monique has had. How did it make you feel? The fact that he said that um, didn't make me feel upset at all because I understand that when you keep, uh, when you're in an environment and you keep seeing the same thing done and you understand there's a particular way that you need to act in order to be in, that when you're comfortable being out, you can't be mad at a person for using a technique that they think is going to win. So I respected him, you know, but what people don't know is in that conversation that he edited out, that he went on when Monique posed the question, Steve, you told me that you would have appreciated if the network was going to allow you to know that they were going to cancel your show. And then he got upset and said, you're absolutely right. And he went off into saying that I know what these white boys do. And they in the truck right now. And it would have been appreciated if you put in seven good years of work that they would have at least given you a call and say, hey, Steve, we're going to let your show go. Mm -hmm. basically, basically, the sentiment was that people will say one thing for the camera and say something totally different about the way things work behind the scenes. Um, Monique and Sydney, they've been very consistent. I've never seen Sydney get upset, um, and he's always been a reasonable individual, uh, very good brother. And if you remember on Indisputable, um, when we talked to Monique and Sydney about the fact that CBS owes them money according to the allegation. Here it is. Thank you both for being on the show. Uh, we go way back, and obviously, I advocate with you on this issue. How are you both? Wonderful. Thanks for having us, Dr. Richie. Wonderful. Always good. Always good. Let's talk about the reality of what is happening now. And Monique, I'm going to go to you first. As it stands today, can you give us an update as to the issue with CBS? And since you made that proclamation on social media, have, has anyone contacted you from there? Not as of today, no one has contacted us from there. Okay. Here's what I'm doing. I'm helping people understand. I want you to see the tapestry here. If time after time again, Monique and Sydney are proven to be right, people are coming back saying, you know what? They were actually correct. I was wrong. There are some other things that are out there where some other folk may need to do a little soul searching and say, I was, I was wrong for saying that. I should not have played that game. Um, I was in a different state of vibration, awareness, and consciousness at that time. We all have to grow. 
Do you remember when Lee Daniels grew right in front of us? Here it is. And it took me a long time to realize. I am so sorry for hurting you in any way that I do. It was so emotional for Monique because she has so much love for that brother. And it took him a few years. And, and what he apologized for was the fact that he knew he hurt her. Okay. All right. Um, Senator, as a as a truth teller yourself, yeah. you understand the fallout that can happen, especially when you got folk that got access. To a platform, what's a power to yep. power and money? Uh, yeah, Dr. Richie, I definitely can feel what Sister Monique is going through. I've been through that. I'm still going through that right now. Some people, when they out to get you because you're telling the truth, they won't lay off and they'll make phone calls. I am so happy that you are laying out this tapestry, Dr. Richie, Monique and her husband, Sydney. They deserve this and they deserve all good things that are coming their way. And to my brother, my brother, my friend, uh, uh, Leonard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love that brother. Man. I love <laughs> Charlemagne the God. You know, it takes a big person, a big man to to apologize in the way that he did. He gave himself the donkey of the day. That yep. That is a big deal. And so I am so happy and I am so proud of him. And I'm happy for Monique and her husband that they are being validated in real time. You know, Minister Malcolm X said once said that the black woman is the most disrespected person mm-hmm. on the face of the earth. Basically, I want to quote him directly. He said the most disrespected person in America is the black woman, the most unprotected person in America is the black woman, the most neglected person in America is the black woman. That was true when he spoke those words in the 60s, and it is still true, unfortunately, today, and it permeates all sectors of society. And politics is everywhere, Dr. Richie. You don't have to be a politician or in the political realm in terms of electoral politics to have politics at play when it comes to your livelihood. So the fact that Charlemagne and also Lee Daniel, I mean, I was tearing up right then and there, uh, had the courage and the conviction to apologize to her in public says a lot. And amen to what you said, Dr. Richie, about some of these other folks who need to come to grips with some of the things that they've done wrong and come on out and be vulnerable yeah, and just let right. it be known so people can start to heal together. Yep. Um, people will respect you uh, oh, even yeah. more. So Ashley Massaro accused McMahon, all right, of preying on wrestlers. Now, there's some twists and turns to this. Let me go to the previous coverage. Here it is. According to an affidavit back in 2017, McMahon, after learning that one of his performers, Ashley Massaro, was allegedly raped by a military doctor during a WWE overseas tour. He allegedly told her to keep the incident confidential because it would in fact ruin the relationship between the WWE and the United States military. That young lady you're looking at, she later took her own life. She committed suicide in 2019. Put up the picture. 
In a previously unpublished statement given before her 2019 death by apparent suicide, Ashley Massaro, a former WWE wrestler, said company founder Vince McMahon sexually preyed on female wrestlers and that she was punished for rejecting his advances by being given bad scripts. She believed were meant to destroy her reputation, behavior. She said, he was known for. The statement was given to her lawyers as they worked up a sworn affidavit published shortly after her death in which she said she was raped on a military base while in Kuwait on a WWE tour and that management covered it up. Now remember WWE is being paid a lot of money by the military to have this kind of contract. The attorneys ultimately left it out because it wasn't relevant to central claims in the lawsuit, which they were representing her, which concerned concussions. As Vice News reported, WWE publicly denied that its upper management knew about the rape allegation, but that was untrue. A lawyer for former executive John Laranitis said that he and quote, most of upper management were aware of it. A claim corroborated by previous statements from a former WWE doctor. In the previously secret statement, Masaro, who joined WWE in 2005, represented the company as a survivor contestant and Playboy model, and ultimately was released in 2008, asserts that she saw McMahon making out with female wrestlers in the, lock, in the locker room, and then he, uh, and that he sexually harassed her. She also says that after she rejected advances, he wrote demeaning scripts, uh, meaning this is now your role. This, this is the character you will play uh, for her to perform that she uh, inferred were meant to end her career and destroy her reputation. Something that she said had previously happened to another female wrestler before she left the company. Vice News is withholding the name of that person to protect her privacy. She could not be reached for comment. She also details two of McMahon's long-serving lieutenant, uh, lieutenants counseling her on how to deal with his behavior. Let's put it up. So former WWE wrestler Paul London, who was Masaro's boyfriend during their tenure uh, in WWE, spoke in an interview about how she was harassed by McMahon and that executive Kevin Dunn knew about it. Here it is. Right. But I do remember specifically many times when she would she would be crying to me because Vince was propositioning her to to fly on the jet with them. Like Kevin Dunn, Bucktooth Bucky would be uh, telling her that she has to fly on the jet with them, or that he might you know possibly or every now and then if she was at the you know they'd always put the divas up at the TV hotel or whatever. You know, he'd be knocking on her door and, you know, trying to get her to answer. And it's just like, I'm shocked this Vince stuff is just now coming out. Wow. All right. Um, so meanwhile, um, a spokesperson for TKO, uh, WWE's parent company, declined to comment when provided a detailed accounting of the allegations in the statement and questions raised by it. A lawyer said to represent McMahon did not respond to a request for comment. Lawyers are shutting up. That's a, that's a first. Um, rumors have long circulated about a WWE casting couch in which women were put in position to either yield 
to the sexual demands of male managers or be humiliated on camera or fired or both. They have been difficult to substantiate in part because women believed to have been subject to such schemes have been hesitant to speak out for fear of retaliation from WWE, which until recently was controlled by McMahon and his family. Meanwhile, Janelle Grant's attorney, Ann Callis on the right, insinuated during a News Nation's interview that Grant wasn't alone, saying, quote, my office and my inbox have had a barrage of people wanting to come forward to attest about this culture of corruption and also possible victims. We're just beginning now to wade through all of this, but we're frankly overwhelmed, end quote. Right? Um, yeah, McMahon, Donald Trump's friend. Okay. That now we understand much of their connection. Hell of a thing. Uh, Senator, thoughts here. Uh, sad. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time. Yeah. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And we see in particular industries as more of a magnet to have this kind of abuse by men and some women have engaged in this kind of a sexual abuse and sexualized power over people in their careers. It is patently uh, unfortunate and unfair that people comport themselves this way. And unless people are willing to speak up and speak out, it will continue. And the people who have the most power are the people who get the cover the most. Yep. Unfortunately, in these industries, so is this industry, uh, Hollywood, anything to do to deal with acting and that sort of thing, but it also happens in politics as well. I mean, this what, what we're talking about is as old as time. Yep, you're right. All right. Uh, light is the disinfectant, the darkness. Let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. All right, he's back, Mr. Spike Cohen, 2020 Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate. Uh, there are many calling for him to run for president uh, in this election. We shall see if he makes that announcement. Um, we're going to chop it up about Biden. And if it seems as if he's at a place of no return, uh, Mr. Cohen, good day. Welcome to Indisputable. Thank you for having me back on, Rashad. It's always great. Always good to have you, dear brother. All right. Um, I'm looking at polling data. Um, I have a pretty good grasp of some of the trends. I don't want to resume what you know, believe about the pointed question. So if you would give us your sentiment, I would then opine. Yeah, so I think that this is one of many examples of how Joe Biden is slow walking his party and his can't his his administration into an electoral loss. Um, they are ignoring a, a growing voting block within the Democratic Party, which is uh, over a million uh, Muslim voters, uh, the vast majority of whom break for Democrats. And especially when you look at where they tend to be concentrated, which is in a lot of swing states, just a significant loss of that vote could be enough if all other things are equal to tip yeah. the balance to to Trump winning. And uh, I think that they're they're whistling past the graveyard on all of this. Let me read some of the uh, ratings as they have kind of declined. So in 2021, April 9th, 2021, Biden's job approval rating was at 55.2%. That's actually high for a president, by the way. So 55.2%, it was favorable. Yep. Um, Afghanistan withdrawal, 
a couple other things happened, it started to decline. So now you get to 2022. 2022, it goes down. And then he's now at a negative of 55.5% negative, negative, all right? And you have, in my humble opinion, dear brother, one of the most incompetent individuals on the Republican side vying to be president of the United States. And that's what makes it even all the more embarrassing, in my opinion. The guy's literally giving you a layup, and it's difficult to defend. But it's been downhill even more. You have a 15% point deficit as it relates to some of our younger voters that are the most energetic in the party. You yep. lose them, you lose your door knockers, you lose your people that make phone calls. Yep. You now have the Muslim Americans, as you just said, because of the mishandling of Gaza and his him aligning with the Israeli government, even when a lot of Israelis don't align with the Israeli government and what they're doing. Yep. This has been so counterintuitive. And I think the reason why a lot of Democrats are upset, it's not just because of Biden, it's because of the actual policies that Biden is supposed to champion being a champion of democratic policy. So a person is on the ballot, but really your policy is on the ballot. And if you ignore all of the political warnings, that means that you are now endangering my policy. You're endangering my rights that I need you to advocate for because you seemingly do not care about being reelected. And then the most recent polling data showed Kamala Harris now is dipping in a way that she was somewhat immune to. I mean, she kind of hit a plateau and now that's going under as well. The hell is happening. I think it's it's what you mentioned with policy. I think it's also a level of hubris, Rashad. If you'll recall, part of why he was elected in 2020, besides the fact that he wasn't Donald Trump, uh, was that there was a tremendous amount of anger over the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. And that led to protests. It also led to outrage over police brutality and qualified immunity and many other things. And so many of the people that were chanting defund the police voted for Joe Biden. Why I'm not sure because Joe Biden was the architect of most of what they were protesting, but we'll put that aside for a moment. Well, uh, he we, gets we can elected. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we can talk about that. He gets elected. Days later, he meets with civil rights leaders where he tells them, among other things, if he if they don't like what he's doing, to hell with them. Uh, and then he moves to triple federal funding for militarized policing. That was, in my mind, a microcosm of what the administration has been. Promising one thing, getting elected by a base that wants one thing, and then coming in and doing basically whatever they want and telling those same voters, well, what else are you going to do? You're going to vote Republican? And I think what's going to happen is a lot. I don't think many of them are going to vote Republican, uh, but I do think a lot of them are just going to stay home. And especially in this case, when it comes to Israel and and Palestine, I think a lot of people might look to other parties. For example, the Libertarian Party has been calling for ending aid to Israel for decades. Long before uh, this conflict or the Intifada of 2000 or any of that, we've been calling for getting uh, the uh, US government out of funding foreign regimes of any kind. And uh, we've also been calling for an end to US neocon foreign policy, which has killed millions of people. What's happening in Israel pales in comparison to the last 23 years of US foreign policy. And I think a lot of these people who have already decided they're not going to vote for Biden, they might very well vote for us, even if they don't see themselves as libertarians, just to vote for what is likely to be the only truly anti-war, anti-neoconservative party that will be on their state's ballot. Let me give you some insight as to why many of those who were involved in the movement still voted for Biden. And many of them voted for Biden holding their nose, okay? 
Yep. But they voted for Biden because number one, the country is set up to where you do not have a selection, you have an election. And you know the difference in that. Oh yeah. And this uh, election has already selected the two corporations that will produce the individuals that must be president of the United States. Yep. And, and in that process, you really only have to work for about 7.5% of the vote because your respective party gets you the rest. All right. If you're the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee, you only need to get about 7.5% of the actual vote because the company, the Democratic Party or Republican Party, gets you the rest. So that's how they have a lock. And then black folk in particular, we're in this position where we're choosing from bad policy and worse policy. And when you compare Donald Trump literally calling Black Lives Matter protesters um, terrorists, and creating false narratives about them intentionally and also subscribing to the very same ideology that they are antithetical to. Mm. How do you embrace, how do you openly embrace um, a Republican, especially top ticket Republican who's signing off on the rhetoric? There may have been some local nuances, but top ticket Republican, not so much. Let's get back into um, one of the, the trends that I am seeing. There's this, a lot of people are interested in politics that they weren't before, all right? Uh, if Trump did anything that can be seen as a uh, a silver lining, uh, he woke some folk up. He also woke some folk up, I would have preferred stay asleep. Uh, and these individuals are now part of the political mainframe, right? They, yep. they, they tell you exactly what they want. I mean, some people are saying, listen, I want Trump to remain president forever. Um, I, I do not want him to ever give up the presidency so he can bring our country back. Like these things are are fundamentally adverse to democracy. All right, we can all agree to that. And you have literally people voted for him, not wanting him to uphold the Constitution, not wanting him to uphold principles and policy. This is a new modern dynamic because while some people may have held these sentiments very secretly, they are now saying these things out loud. And 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 now there's this argument that may need to be pushed. While policies obviously are imperative and it's the goal in politics, mm-hmm. the policy on the agenda this time could very well be democracy itself. What say you to that argument? I think it's the only argument that's going to have any real pull right now. It's going to be hard to look at economic conditions. It's going to be hard to look at, as you said, the actual policy. And frankly, I mean, especially after the special counsel report, it's going to be hard to look at the actual man, Joe Biden himself, and say, that's why I'm voting for Joe Biden for president. It's almost going to have to be entirely the argument of, well, we're saving democracy. The problem with that argument is that they're essentially arguing in order to save democracy, we have to vote for this one person. Anyone else that you you vote for and democracy is over, which is sort of a contradicting argument to make to begin with. There's also the fact that whether real or perceived, an increasing number of Americans think that the uh, acts of prosecuting uh, Donald Trump and to then act to try to remove him from state ballots, not only is a a, a political hit, but also in and of itself an act against democracy, whatever you think of Donald Trump, the act of trying to remove him from from the ballot. Uh, So it's going to be a hard argument to make. And I think if you end up in a situation, which is the situation that the Democratic Party and the Biden administration and Biden campaign are in, where the only real argument they're making that has any kind of traction is you have to vote for us or democracy is ruined, while kind of simultaneously undermining that argument, it's gonna be a hard one to make. And like you said, they're working on voting for a small margin of voters. 
Muslim American voters are part of that small margin of voters that are gettable either by getting them to vote Republican or just not vote at all or vote for the Libertarian Party or the Green Party or something else, especially when you consider where they're concentrated. In Georgia, which Biden won by about 12,000 votes, 61,000 Muslims voted in Georgia, the vast majority of them for Biden. Similar numbers in Pennsylvania and Michigan, even in Virginia. This could be the difference, just the Muslim American vote in a close enough election could be enough for Joe Biden to lose. And that's before you get into much larger voting segments like anti-war voters, progressive young people and things like that. This doesn't look good for the campaign. Yeah, you know, Democrats, uh, they have always had to win presidential elections by coalition building. And that has been the strategy and has also been the slam dunk, okay? Republicans, when they get into office, they usually don't get into office by way of coalition building, but by voter base excitement and particular uh, dynamic happening in the country, take advantage of it. They articulate it well, they message it well. And they are able to get in because of the middle, all right? The middle goes to them. Now, the middle is much smaller than it has been before, all right? We used to have a lot of people that considered themselves nonpartisan. They're, they're in the middle. That number is shrinking considerably. People are more polarized. People are choosing sides. And I don't think, and you can give me your opinion on this, I don't think the old strategy of running toward the base for the primary and running to the middle for the general is how you win presidential elections anymore. What say you? I'm not sure if I agree with that. And I I will say, especially for the Republican base and Republican leaning voters, I think it might still work for them. I mean, we shall see, you may very well be right. Uh, I think a a thing that is going to be incredibly helpful towards getting the middle, which frankly, I'm not sure how much the middle has shrunk and how much of it has just stopped voting. Um, Because I think we've seen- That would be a shrinkage de facto then. Yeah, yeah, a de facto shrinkage. But those are people that could still vote if they chose to. Um, I think a lot of the middle, which frankly, Whatever size the middle is, it's it's larger than, for example, Muslim voters right. uh, as a, as a block. We're talking now well over 10, 15, maybe even 20 million voters at the very least. Um, you know, when you get a special counsel report that says that they're going to decline to prosecute Joe Biden because he's, as they put it, an elderly man with a poor memory, and they think that a jury would be sympathetic to him and think that he didn't even remember what he was doing with classified documents. That is a huge, huge problem, especially when. In his response, when Joe Biden did his press conference yesterday, reading from a teleprompter, he flubbed multiple times and including calling Egyptian President El Sisi the president of Mexico. In a press conference, he put together to say that he wasn't having declining memory problems. I think that you know it's going to be increasingly hard for people in the middle who are not as politically connected as us, don't really follow politics that much. They just kind of get a gut feeling of who they should vote for. And if they see one person who's acting like the same goofball he's been acting like since the 70s, and another one who seems to be having a cognitive decline in front of us, uh, I think a good number of them that may have voted for Biden in 2020 may end up voting for Trump in, in 24. Or, or sitting out. Now, here's the or other Or sitting thing. out, yeah. Right. Uh, Trump is so horrible that even with the gaffes of Biden, I mean, he's been a gaff master a long time. Now, right. now you have the cognitive uh, dynamic associated yeah, with yeah. it. Uh, that uh, tr- Trump won't run away with anything because he's such a flawed candidate, yeah, right? Yeah. There, there was a time things like this would clearly contrast the challenger, 
all right, or the you know presumptive nominee of the Republican yep. Party and the right now president of the Democratic Party. And even when we had our congressional elections, where Republicans vowed this was going to be a sweep, you're going to see this this red wave. It didn't happen. Yep. It didn't happen. And most of Trump's endorsed candidates lost. Yep, they lost. So we first of all, I and I told you this before. I believe having multi-parties, a multi-party system is the absolute best way to go because it challenges the policy. Now everybody got to fight for the vote of people yep. rather than companies being able to purchase two sides of the same coin. Yep. I'm going to give you the last word dear brother. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that the two-party system has given us a person that very few people outside of his base want against the current president who we are watching sundown in front of us and whose policies are not what he said they would be. And he's gaslighting us or his administration is gaslighting us to believe, no, this is actually what you voted for and ignoring his voters and his base in the process. This is what happens when you only have two options and they're all owned by the same oligarchy. And this is what the two party system is. This is a big part of why I'm a libertarian is First of all, because I'm libertarian from a philosophical standpoint, I believe we have the solutions that America needs. Even if I wasn't a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian as I am, I would still support multi-party politics. Because if you don't like what I have to say, if you're more progressive, then vote Green Party. If you don't yeah. like what I have to say and you're more of a rugged constitutionalist fight uh, type, vote uh, Constitution Party. There should be so many options because the parties and the people in power should be competing for your vote, not taking advantage of it like Democrats do with Muslims and black people and young people and Republicans do with older people and 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 white people and suburban people and and you know uh, libertarian or or constitutional leaning people. They shouldn't be taking advantage of our vote or taking us for granted. They should be competing for it, and part of that competition should be actually delivering on the promises that they make. And if they're not doing that, then in my mind, instead of voting for the party that tells the lies that I like more, I'd rather vote for someone that actually reflects what I believe. That's right. And here's the thing, dear brother, you will not get out of that ecosystem until you get this damn corporate money out of politics like you have it. Because that always blurs the lines. And all of a sudden, an interest becomes a real thing. No, no, that's just a corporate interest. And we're fighting each other because of their framework. Always a pleasure. Go, Always go a pleasure, and I'd love to come back on to talk about the roots of that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, dear brother, that's the next debate then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, dear brother, I appreciate it. You're a straight shooter, you don't gaslight, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe, that's why I can always, always keep an open door for you. Appreciate you, man. Thank you, Rashad. Thank you. All right, remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember the truth is always indisputable.